0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And, you know, in January, we look at pro-life apologetics and such, and our guest is going to cover that someday, along with a whole lot of other areas. And this is a lady I have been wanting to get on the show for quite some time, and I, I, I'm very really excited we finally got that chance. Here. And I've read through her book, and I gotta say, it's a book I've loved and I've hated. I've loved it because it's got so much, so many awesome insights in it and such. I hate it because I've seen me or something. I knew all this stuff. Why couldn't I put it together as well as she did? Why did I not see the connections that she saw before? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm kind of kicking myself. I this this stuff—it's so good. I wish I had thought of it. But we are we are talking about a book, "Love Thy Body," which. Uh, no, it's actually not a fitness guru talking today. And we're not discussing what's the best diet regimen for you to follow. We're talking about something completely different. And the author of that book is Nancy Piercy. She's the author of the newly released Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University and editor-at-large of the Peercy Report. Her earlier books include The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, Total Truth, and co-author of Harold Fickett and Chuck Coulson, How Now Shall We Live. Harold in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, Piercy has spoken at universities such universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. So, um, Dr. Piercy, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for coming on. Um, If my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing?
2: Well, people do sometimes ask me, how did you get interested in things like apologetics and Christian worldview? And the answer is, that's how I became a Christian. Mm. It was central to my own conversion. I grew up in a Christian home, Um, It was a Scandinavian Lutheran home, which means that we were Lutheran mostly because we were Scandinavian. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, There didn't seem to be a lot of uh, personal reality in terms of the Christianity that we experienced. And when I was in high school, I started having questions, going to a public high school. All my textbooks are written from a secular position. All my professors, my teachers seem to be secular people. And I started wondering, how do we know that Christianity is true? And that's all I was asking. How do we know that it's true? Mm -hmm. And I was not able to get any answers uh, from my parents or my pastors. Or uh, I spoke to a Christian um, university professor. And I thought he might be able to give me a better answer. I said, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. And I thought... That's not a very good answer. It's not working for me anymore. Uh, uh-huh. I had a chance. I, I had a chance to talk to a um, seminary dean, and I thought at least from him I will get some some real answers. And uh, all he said was, "Don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes."
1: Oh gosh! <laughs> so,
2: why don't you have answers for my doubts in that case? So it was a very Intentional decision. Then I decided Christianity must not really have any answers. That it was a matter of intellectual honesty. That's really how I thought of it. Um, intellectual honesty. Not to, it, you can't say you believe something if you don't have good reasons for it, mm-hmm. whether it's Christianity or anything else.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, about ha- halfway through high school, I started. I intentionally set aside my Christian background and said, "I am going to go on a search for truth." And I will. Ha- I guess it's up to me. I will have to analyze all the religions and philosophies that are out there and decide which one is true. Which is, I guess, kind of a big job for a sixteen-year-old.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But I literally started walking down the hallway to uh, the library in the public high school I attended, and and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought I can't get any people to talk to me about these issues. Maybe maybe these dead guys. Maybe these philosophers have answers. Uh, after all, they're the ones who are supposed to be talking about things like, how do we know what is true?
0: Chesterton's democracy of a dead.
2: That's right. That's what I was, I was vote, vote, finding out what they voted for. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I, I really was struggling with, uh, because I had been a Christian, and I knew what it meant to have a sense of purpose in life and so on. I really felt the lack, I understood very well what I was missing then, that I did not have a sense of what is the meaning of life, why are we here, Uh, is there a basis for ethics, or are we just imposing our own beliefs on you? what works for me, what works for you? And I slid pretty rapidly into skepticism and relativism and determinism and all these secularisms because I realized if there was no God, there really was not an answer. To these questions, and it, so I spent several years as an agnostic before I ended up at La Brie, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland. I was going to school in Germany at the time. Uh, we we had lived there when I was a kid, so I had gone back to Germany, and that's when I heard for the first time any hint of 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 apologetics that there were really good reasons. For being a Christian that there were there was evidence there were good arguments uh, and I was I was stunned I was blown away I had never heard any of this before in fact I was so I was so um, impressed that I left <laughs> I, I stayed a month uh, the first time I went to Labrie because I was afraid that I might be drawn in for emotional reasons It was mm-hmm. uh, Labrie was very attractive it made Christianity look very attractive because not only did it have the intellectual side, but it also, as you know, Francis Schaeffer was very much into the arts and mm-hmm. culture and, uh, and the people, they were all hippies. <laughs> so they were all cool people back in the 70s. That, that translated as cool. Um, so I was afraid I might be drawn in for emotional reasons. And I left. I wanted to make sure that I didn't want to become a Christian anyway. And so if I was going to do this, it had to be because I was intellectually convinced, Mm. absolutely convinced. So I went back to the States, continued reading apologetics, eventually decided I was persuaded it was true, and went back to Labrie a year and a half later. Mm. And that's where I really stayed four months that time, and I got really grounded in an understanding of Christian worldview. So from the very beginning of my Christian life— um the, the very notions of, of apologetics and worldview have been absolutely central. I would not be here if, if I had not encountered Francis Schaeffer's apologetics and, and answered the intellectual questions that I had.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you said at the time you did not want to be a Christian. Why not?
2: Well, Christianity had let me down. Mm. <laughs> I'd asked my questions mm-hmm. and there were no answers. And uh, like I said, uh, it's not as if the Christianity I grew up with was very attractive either. You know, it was a very uh, uh, Scandinavian Lutheranism with its uh, was 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 very dry and cold and formal. Mm -hmm. So, but most I think mostly it had let me down, and Mm -hmm. I had gone on. I I left it behind, and had gone on to other things, and had no interest in going back.
0: I was curious if it might have been like for moral reasons or such because of the commands of Christianity or something. It, it wasn't that, right?
2: No, it wasn't. And You know, most people think that, right? If, yeah. if if young people start having questions about Christianity, the first thing that people ask them is, you know, it's just that you want to party on Friday nights, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. it wasn't that. I was not rebellious in that sense. I, I was a quote-unquote good girl. I got good grades at school. You know, I was a high achiever. It had nothing to do with the morality of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And people say, you know, nobody can be argued into the kingdom or, you know, it's never an into- just an intellectual decision. Well, it was. In my mm-hmm. case, largely was uh, just an intellectual conviction. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I also can't but think of something J.P. Moreland had said once. That He said that he's told his daughters that if you're ever convinced Christianity isn't true— you should stop believing in it.
2: Exactly, mm. and, and Schaefer used to do that too. One of the things I really appreciated about being at La Brie mm. is, unlike most Christians, there was never any pressure. In fact, Schaefer would sometimes encourage people to leave, as as I did. Mm. Um, he would encourage people to leave because he did not want them to sense any pressure. He wanted them if they if they were not. Um, If they were not convinced, he would say, go away and think about it. (laughs) Um, And I think most Christians are too scared to do that. They're too scared to leave that up to the Holy Spirit and to the sheer power of truth. Um, But it's the same thing. I I would say the same thing to my children that J.P. Moreland says, if if it's not true, don't believe it. Yeah. we're free thinkers. Yeah. As Christians, we need to claim that that label. We are the free thinkers.
0: Yep. In fact, I think Francis Schaeffer, far back with advice of his own daughter when she started having doubts, he said, "Okay, go out there, look and see, and ask all the questions you want."
2: Exactly. Exactly. And that's. I think that's the stance that Christians really should take. We should yep. not be afraid of young people looking at other worldviews. Look, I, I had a. Um, I taught an apologetics class once for a homeschooling group. Back when my children were younger, I knew that the only reason, only way they were going to get apologetics is if I taught, if I taught the classes. So in my homeschooling classes, I there was a mother who once came to me and she said, well, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if I want to sign up my son for your class because I don't know if I want him to know that there are other worldviews out there and that there's people who don't believe in God. And I thought, That's the opposite. You do want them to know. You want them to hear it from you first, so that at at the very least, you've gotten rid of that sense of novelty. Young people are often drawn into the novelty of something my mother never taught me, and you can at least get rid of the sense of novelty. You can at least give them the sense that there are answers out there, even if they haven't fully accepted them. When the crunch comes, they will remember. You know, there were answers to these objections. And they will go seek them out.
0: yeah I'd I kind of think this has to be an extremely naive mother because her son's gonna find out anyway, sooner or later, especially in the age of the internet
2: exactly. And what I have found this, that my my next book actually is going to I, this isn't set in stone yet, but I think I will write a book on how to keep your kids Christian in college. Mm-hmm. and it's it's inspired by the fact that so many Christian parents are letting their kids go off to secular universities, and are not preparing them by letting them know what they're going to run into. I encountered um, a mother not re- not long ago, and she's she was at the College of Biblical Studies, which is a Bible college here in Houston, and I speak there frequently. And this mother came up to me and said her son had gone off to Texas A and M. I don't know if you know, but Texas A and M is a very conservative college, as secular colleges go. And yet, even there, he uh, was studying psychology and lost his faith within the first semester because he had not been prepared mm-hmm. to know that in psychology today, most of the theories are not only secular but actively anti-Christian. Ever since Freud, mm-hmm. psychology has assumed that religion is a sign of mental illness, that it is, as Freud put it, it's a infantile regression that if you you just can't grow up, and so you project an imaginary father figure into the sky. Well, this young man didn't know that, and so when he was encountered all of these negative views of religion within his first semester, he just gave up his Christianity altogether. And he, and it's, he's I think a junior now, and still um, st- is still floundering. And I I couldn't I couldn't say this, of course, to the mother, but I couldn't help thinking. You mean you let him go off to study and you didn't tell him? You didn't tell him what he was going to encounter? At least if young people are forewarned and forearmed, they won't be totally blown away by hearing these views for the first time when they go to college.
0: Honestly, I'm thinking at this day and age, you might want to call your book How to Keep Your Christians' Christian High School, right? Things exactly. are going. Uh, yeah, good point. Yeah, and one other thing I want to talk about uh, before we get into the book is. Uh, I'm always happy to have people on from HBU here, although I understand you have a certain number of very odd fellows working there with you, don't you?
2: <laughs> You're right, very odd. <laughs> you I don't know if you know this guy named Mike Lacona, but, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, he, 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 I, I've heard about him. He seems like some kind of weirdo, I think.
2: <laughs> I actually got a re- request from my brother recently saying, this guy named Mike Lacona is coming to our city to speak to speak. Do you think he's worth hearing? <laughs> and, of course, I wrote back and said, go, go. Mm-hmm. Don't stop. Go.
0: <laughs> yes, he's been on a number of times. Jerry Walls has been on. Holly Ordway has been on. it's always great, great to get people from HBU. Wonderful school there. Now, yeah, they're
2: great colleagues.
0: Now, this broker, love thy body. I mean, obviously, we're talking about, you know, the fitness regimen. You need to follow the diet. You need to follow to get into a proper shape, Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? It and, does. And the interesting thing is, even I, I have to cover a little bit the diet regimen thing because um, many people say uh, that the thesis of the book is that secular views, the secular, secular ethics actually rests on a devaluation of the body and a devaluation of, the, of biology And when people first hear that, they first say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that sounds wrong. Doesn't Western culture place a ridiculously high value on physical appearance Mm -hmm. and fitness? Don't we have an obsession with diet and exercise and bodybuilding and cosmetics Mm -hmm. and Botox and so on? Uh, uh, An HBU professor once said to me when I was giving a seminar She said, it seems to me that people go in really the opposite direction. They're making an idol of the body. But you see, to be obsessed by the body does not mean the same thing as accepting it. Mm -hmm. The cult of the body, the veneration of the airbrushed body, the the one we see in the media, the unrealistic photoshopped images that we're surrounded with, is actually an expression of a hatred of real bodies. Mm -hmm. And so even even though it's true that there is a kind of a cult of the body, it's an a, it expresses an aversion to real bodies. You, know, when you When you say it sounds like a bodybuilding book, um, ironically, even bodybuilding can be kind of instrumentalizing of the body, meaning you treat it as a tool to be used and to be controlled and to be objectified instead of valuing it for its own sake. And so that's the The obsession with the body does not really undermine my main thesis, yeah. which is that secular ethics rests on a low view of the body.
0: Yeah, I, I'm reminded about several years ago, and this kind of thinking comes from Peter Vision. I was browsing through Facebook and I saw one of my friends make a post about how in our culture we just think about sex way too much. It's just all we think about, and I responded, "No, no, you got it wrong." We think about it way too little. We do it. We dream about it. We write TV shows about it. We, we do everything except think about it.
1: Yeah,
2: except think about it. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I have a whole chapter in Love Thy Body on the hookup culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I make that same point. I say we, we people tend to think that sexual hedonism puts too much emphasis on the body and sex. But in reality, it gives sex too little importance mm-hmm. because what it's doing is it's saying the body can be disconnected from the whole person and has no higher meaning or value. It is just bodies connecting. In fact, um I quote a young man who was interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine, mm-hmm. and he said, sex is just one piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. And that's why in the hookup culture, the the rules of the game are Mm -hmm. no love, no relationship, no commitment, as though the body can be simply used as an object for pleasure with no higher meaning. Mm -hmm. So so if you press it back far enough, The hookup culture is really rusting on a materialistic view of the human being Mm -hmm. as a physical organism driven by sheer physical drives with no higher purpose. And so no wonder it's leaving a trail of wounded people. They're trying to live out a worldview that does not fit who they really are. Mm -hmm. In my book, Love Thy Body, I quote a researcher, her name is Donna Freitas, and she wrote a book Mm -hmm. called The End of Sex. But she interviewed hundreds of college students. And it was fascinating because, on the one hand, they would immediately proclaim that, yes, they love the hookup culture, it's liberating, and it's fun. And then about halfway through the semester, they would start to admit privately that they are very disappointed in these meaningless sexual encounters. They feel hurt and lonely. They wish they knew how to create a genuine relationship in which they are known and loved as real people. And if you read some of the quotes from these college students, it's really quite heartbreaking. Um, Mm -hmm. One of them said, uh, a a college student named Alicia says, hookups are very scripted. You have to learn to turn off everything except your body Mm. to make yourself emotionally invulnerable.
1: Mm.
2: Or another one says, another college student said, sex should stem from emotional intimacy, but it's the opposite with us. And one of them summed it up by saying it's body first, personality second. So they sense, they sense what's happening here is that their body is being cut off from who they are as whole persons and treated as, it's just, as if it were just a physical organism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's very, it's, it's very dehumanizing. And so you were right when you said the the, real, the main problem is we're not really thinking through how we're treating the body in our sexually uh, libertarian culture.
0: Yeah, I'd like to let people know this book. In it, you cover topics like abortion, um, pornography, premarital sex, homosexuality, transgenderism. Let me go with everything you know, it kind of would have been nice if you'd, you would know, written about something that we're we're all talking about today. You know, something relevant to today, right? <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah, I, I
2: just I just I just chose things out of the headlines, you know. <laughs> uh, but these are these are the issues that are mm. in the headlines every this is every day. This is the first book I've ever written where every day, pretty much, there was something in the news relative to the book, and I'd mm. have to quickly look it up and say. You know, is this something that needs to go in my book? Um, because these they, they certainly are the issues that are pressing in on us every day.
0: Yeah. Now, we're talking about this thing. I mean, we're not talking about, for instance, there are a lot of Christians who hold sort of a view of the soul. Like, I mean, the only exception of many ones are totally physicalists and such in their anthropology. But we're not talking about anything like body-soul dualism, the or We're talking about something totally different, aren't we?
2: Yeah, right. You know, it's it's difficult because there's not enough words. And mm-hmm. so when I say dualism, I'm not, I'm not talking about the traditional Christian understanding of body and soul. Yeah. Um, but people also, also use the word dualism to describe the secular distinction between body and person. And that's quite different. It might be the easiest to see in terms of abortion. Many bioethicists today will say that, yes, the fetus is human from conception. The data from genetics and DNA is now just too strong. It's clear that the fetus is human right from the beginning. But they will say it's not a person. That to become a person, you need to achieve a certain level of cognitive awareness, cognitive development, consciousness and so on and so as long as it's merely human merely in quotation marks as long as it's merely human it's just a disposable piece of matter Mm. it can be killed for any reason or no reason it can be used for research it can be tinkered with genetically harvested for organs and disposed of with the other medical waste Mm. so this is and there's a label for it. In fact, it's called personhood theory. And mm-hmm. it's the idea that essentially the the human being has been split in half. On the one hand, it can be physically human. I mean, scientifically, it is a human organism. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it becomes a person. And at that point, it acquires value. At that point, it acquires moral standing. Mm-hmm. At that point, we protect it legally. Now the interesting thing, of course, is that there's no scientific basis for this view.
0: Yeah
2: Personal theory is not based on any scientific findings, because think about it. the change from a piece of matter with no rights to a person with inviolable rights is a momentous change. Mm-hmm. And yet, scientifically speaking, there's no transformative point that we can detect objectively. Mm-hmm. So the definition of personhood is completely subjective arbitrary private it's uh, if you read if you read the professional bioethicists they all draw the line at a different place because it's a com- completely arbitrary notion and so it, this is one of those cases where Christians really should be turning the tables it is Christians today on the issue of abortion who are saying we want a scientific view we want to go with, you know, what's, what's biologically valid. We we are first going to de- – we don't determine the worth of human life until we first determine that human life exists. Mm-hmm. So arguments for uh, – pro-life arguments always start with the science.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's the uh, pro-choice arguments today that are based on a private, arbitrary, subjective notion of personhood.
0: Yeah, I find it so odd. We live in the culture where everyone would say, well, we need to prove it scientifically – except for when it comes to things like, say, abortion and such, then all of a sudden they switch to philosophy, which they usually denigrate as, you know, not nearly as good as science, but I guess there's an exception here.
2: It is philosophy, and yet it's even philosophy in a bad sense, because it's, it's not, you know, I, I, I would like to have a higher view of philosophy as rational inquiry,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, what they're promoting is not even that. It's more on the level of just personal values, you know, the, in the secular meaning of the word value, what they mean is what I like, what I prefer. Mm-hmm. They use the word value to mean something that's completely subjective. And that's what the concept of personhood is. It's not even philosophical in the good sense. It is a private, subjective, arbitrary personal value.
0: Yeah, there's a story you talk about in the book, and I thought it was so great when I read it. I, mean, I know Robert George was involved in it. I think the other person was Stan, Stanley Fish. And there was a debate between the two of them. You know what story I'm talking about?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, It started when Stanley Fish wrote an article in the journal First First Things. I I even remember reading that article. Um, And he claimed there that pro-lifers have no right to bring their views into the public arena. Why not? Well, he says their views are are based on faith. And Mm -hmm. faith is something private and subjective. Abortion advocates, he said, based their views on science, on the best ideas of science uh, when life begins. Well, Robert George of Princeton challenged Fish to a debate at a meeting of the American Political Science Association. And uh, in his paper, George argued that in reality, it's the pro-life position that's based on science. And it's it's customary in these kind of uh, debates that the two scholars will exchange their papers ahead of time. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So when the meeting opened up, Fish, Stanley Fish, who's a well-known deconstructionist, by the way, um, mm-hmm. at Duke University.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So Stanley Fish throws George, Robert George's paper on the table and announces Professor George is right and he is right to correct me. And of course, the admission was met by stunned silence, all everyone's jaws falling to the floor. And later, to his credit, Stanley Fish explained why, why he made this startling turnaround. He said, you know, it used to be, it used to be that supporters of abortion would cast themselves as the defenders of rational science and would cast pro-life people as the forces of ignorance and superstition. He said, but you know what? When science began pushing back the moment when life begins, they pushed it all the way back to the beginning. And as a result, uh defenders of abortion have shifted tactics mm-hmm. and now they it's now it is in fact it is it is it, it is a fact that pro-lifers are the ones who make the scientific question the key one when does life begin whereas the supporters of abortion want to transform the question into a metaphysical one or as he calls it a religious question um and he, uh, the way he puts it is, is it mere biological life or is it moral life? Mm-hmm. Which is uh-huh. his way of saying, is it you know, it's the body-person dualism? Is it merely uh-huh. biological life? Is it just a body? Or is it moral life? Is it a person with moral standing and a right to legal protection? So yeah. it is fast, it's fascinating. But what he's saying is the pro-abortion forces lost the argument. You know, they lost the argument on the scientific level. And so they've had to shift grounds now to reject science.
0: You know, something that really struck me as how far we've moved that this kind of thing isn't even thought about so much anymore was back in 2016 during the third presidential debate. I remember two specific questions, Trump being asked if he would accept the election results if he lost. And he said, I'll wait and see. i want to check things out first, which I understood him saying very much. And then Hillary being asked about partial birth abortion, and she describes it live before an audience, and defends it. Guess which one people were talking about the most. Yeah. All right,
2: the first one.
0: Yes, I and mean, <laughs> like, it like it, it—it was it seems so unreal to me. I think I don't care what you think about each of them politically and such. We're talking about partial birth abortion being described, which I think is essentially murder right there, and no one bats an eye.
2: Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a very good point because, mm. you know, I've talked about how professional bioethicists mm. are now ready to admit that life begins at conception. But it's not only professional bioethicists in my book, What mm. they Body. I quote several popular level writers who are now willing to admit that life begins at conception, uh, especially feminist writers. There was one um, British journalist mm-hmm. who said, "I had always firmly supported abortion, and then I then I had my own baby, and mm-hmm. I started I started to wonder." Unfortunately, then she hardened back to her absolutist support for abortion, mm-hmm. but. She continued to acknowledge that life begins at conception. She said, my daughter was formed at conception. Anything else that we might say um, is just a lie to make ourselves feel better, that we're taking a life.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: um, she says, yes, abortion is killing, but it's it's the lesser evil. To which you would say, what could possibly be a greater evil than taking a human life?
1: Right.
2: And she said, well, even worse would be putting limits on women's right to control their reproduction. And so she ends her article with this chilling line. She says, to defend women's rights, you must be prepared to kill. Mm. So even on a popular level now, some, some people are starting to say, we know that life begins at conception. We know it's killing. So we simply have to harden ourselves to that reality and be prepared to kill.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of leaves you not knowing what to say at that point.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I have I have several um, examples like that. Uh, another one was another feminist writer um, in Salon magazine who said, uh, "Yes," and she too said, "And you know, I, I knew without a doubt." That all the ch- when I had when I was pregnant with my children, I knew without a doubt that they were human. No, you know, no, no question. And then she also ends by saying, "Yes, in abortion we take a life, but it's a life worth sacrificing, worth sacrificing what to women's you know to women's interests." In other words, mm-hmm. so it's amazing how forthright. Uh, many of these writers are becoming about what they're doing. It's, it's no longer just, oh, no, it's a blob of tissues. Uh, you know, oh, oh, no, it's just a collection of cells. Maybe you still hear that among ordinary people, but among more prominent people, whether they're journalists or bioethicists, you now find a very forthright acknowledgement that life begins at conception, uh, that abortion is taking that life. And that's why they have to... That's why they have to then find a resort in, in the um, body-person dualism. They'll say, well, it's a body, it's a human organism, but it's not a person. So it's a fragmented view of the human person that's being proposed as a way to get around the reality that abortion is killing.
0: You know, I've said before that uh, you know, I'm not trying to defend the people of the past and such, but in the past, you know, like of a Canaanite culture and such, they sacrifice their children, but you know you could at least say as evil as it was, they were usually doing it for something like save the good of a harvest or something like that. We sacrifice our children, and it's at the altar of convenience, which I think we're worse than they were.
2: <laughs> oh, that, that's that's a comparative thing. That's a li- that's hard to that would be hard to say. If you if you talk to women who've had abortions, this is one of the things that changed it changed I changed my book as I was writing it because I did several reading groups on the manuscript of this book because these are such sensitive issues
1: mm-hmm.
2: I had uh, I had undergraduate reading groups. I had honors college reading groups at HBU. I had high school reading groups. I had graduate student reading groups. I had a group, uh, an apologetic group. Um William Lane Craig has local, apologetics group called rational faith groups mm-hmm. i had multiple groups <laughs> and um, the chapter on abortion i thought was going to be relatively easy because um today most millennials are pro-life the majority of millennials are pro-life we are actually winning the debate with millennials when we stop focusing only on politics it's important if politics are important changing the law is important but when we put just as much effort into education, I think we had better we have better results and we see it today and the numbers are very clear that millennials are now more pro-life mm-hmm. So when I wrote the chapter in love thy Body on abortion, I felt like you know my audience is going to be pretty much with me on this And then in my reading groups, there were a number of women who had abortions. Mm-hmm and i had to change the whole tone of the of the of the chapter mm-hmm. because i realized that a lot of these women were caught in difficult circumstances many of them were not christian at the time some of them were christian at the time one of my students was raped by mm. an ex boyfriend on a christian college campus in her dorm room mm. she was raped by an ex boyfriend who was angry by the way that's the most that breaking up or right after a breakup is when a woman is most likely, most vulnerable to sexual assault, to mm-hmm. physical or sexual assault, it turns out, because the, the guy's angry and he's getting back at her. Mm-hmm. So she was, and her first thought was, my family's going to be shunned at, her, at our church. That was her first thought, was my family's going to be shamed and shunned at my church. And she signed up for the next available date to get an abortion and did it you know within 2 weeks mm. and uh, and she was pro life she was pro life at the time she was pro life when she was in my reading group and she was that scared of what other christians would think about her and and about her family so i began to have a greater sense of the pressure that women are under you know did you know that roughly half of women who get abortions think abortion is wrong no yeah, that was uh-huh. one of the interesting statistics I found uh-huh. when I was writing *Love Body*. Roughly half say that they think abortion is wrong, uh-huh. and so they are—they feel pressure to go against their own their own moral convictions. That's a lot of pressure. So yeah. I, I I rewrote the chapter to talk more about how the church can. Um, can help these women sense that they have the support they need, that they're not going to be shamed and shunned uh, like this young woman felt or feared at least. so that it, we are the first ones the church, the Christian church should be on the front lines of welcoming young women who who've been assaulted, certainly certainly when it's a product of sexual assault, but women who''ve, who've been pressured into sexual relationships maybe sometimes they didn't even want Um, are being pressured into abortions that they don't want. Um, The church should be on the front lines of making them feel that the church is a place where they can come and be welcomed and supported.
0: I do have to say, one of the things that is good about your book, Arthur, is it's very pastoral when it needs to be.
2: Uh, And that's a product of having talked to a lot of people (laughs) and it has, it, you're right, it has lots of personal stories
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I think that that changes the tone of it because an awful lot of the books the books I read in researching for this, for Love Thy Body many of them were they were either moral philosophy which is rather cold and dry or they were exegetical which is what does the Bible say and that's good but they didn't have a whole lot in terms of real people and their stories and their experiences and the other side of it is I really tried to explain what the secular view was. Because our young people are being, they're they're absorbing secular worldviews often without knowing it. Mm. And so helping people to recognize the secular arguments and the the secular view of the body, the secular view of life, of sexuality, uh, homosexuality, and so on. Um, Helping people to recognize, that oh, I'm being influenced by these views and I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. That's what I want people to uh, help people to see that we we can't fight this by just saying here's, but 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 this is what the Bible teaches but this is what the Bible teaches. No, we have to help people to see. Here are the secular views that are sort of worming their way into your mind that you may not have known, and here's how you can answer those secular views.
0: And I also think it's interesting. So many feminists defend abortion, and very I think abortion is one of the most anti-woman things. I can do because two ways I can think of it off is that with abortion, a woman goes against her motherly instincts entirely, killing deliberately a child in a womb. And second, women not wanting to be used as men and by men and treated as sexual objects, abortion enables them to be treated that way.
2: Yeah, I don't think people realize that it, historically it's always been the case then a culture that accepts abortion is a culture that does not treat women with respect, with their, does not treat their biological ability to gestate and bear children as a wonderful capacity, something to be protected and cherished. Instead, it treats women's capacity to bear children as a liability, a disadvantage, a disability, something that should be suppressed with toxic chemicals. And, and deadly devices. So even when I was still an agnostic, I sensed that this was very demeaning to women, that this is very disrespectful to women's natural, like, natural biological capacities.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, let's move on to another topic that's related to this as well, because there's so much to cover in the book here. Now, you know, I'm sure very well that I got married seven and a half years ago. Now my my dad was working somewhere with a crowd that was kind of raunchy and such, and he was my he was proud that I I was had was was keeping my virginity, that I was staying pure until marriage. And he said, "Oh no, no, he's lying to you. He's doing things on the side. He's not telling." You. He says, "Nope, the kids don't lie to me. He's he's really doing this," and. And my wife was the same way, I and mean, we didn't do anything until our wedding night. But the sad thing is, we're more and more the exception, aren't we?
2: Yes. Um, one of the things that um, I put right at the front of Love Their Body was some of the statistics
0: mm-hmm.
2: on how even Christians are being drawn into mm-hmm. living together before marriage, premarital mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. Um Pornography, uh, even pastors, this was rather troubling. Um, was a, Christian men watch pornography at roughly the same rate as men who do not claim to be Christian,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and in, including pastors or cohabitation. The, well, about half, half of, of Christian teenagers or teenagers with religious backgrounds at least support living together before marriage. Among people who have divorced, um, many of them attend church regularly. Mm -hmm. Homosexuality and transgenderism are issues that are dividing even conservative religious groups. And again, roughly roughly half of millennials say that same-sex behavior is morally acceptable. Here at HBU, Houston Baptist University, my colleagues... Tell me that more than half of our students do not do not have a biblical view of homosexuality
1: mm-hmm.
2: and abortion um, teaching. This this was an astonishing one. Like, this is a LifeWay survey found that 70% of women who have an abortion self-identify as Christian, and mm-hmm. 43% said they attended a Christian church at least a month or more at the time they aborted their baby. So. What you're what you're talking about when you say you know you're the exception now is that these practices have certainly spread through the church to where the church does not look significantly different from the rest of the culture. And I don't. What people don't realize though is that when they accept the practice, they end up absorbing the worldview that justifies the practice.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so it's not something you can just do. You know, okay, I go to church on Sunday, and I go to the Bible study, and I go to a prayer meeting, and that's not affected by what I do the rest of the week. No, what you do the rest of the week is, in fact, you're absorbing the secular worldviews that justify those practices. And so over time, they will start to crowd out your Christian worldview.
0: Mm-hmm. A couple of months or so ago, we were, I and I were visiting... Some people at our church in a small group meeting. And I got to talk to the daughter of one of the parents, or a pair of the parents there. And she was telling me about this guy that she was dating. And I'm presuming now, based on her they were living together and such. And she said, well, I'm probably not going to get married anytime soon. So, said, well, why is that? He says, well, he says he wants to travel first. And I'm thinking, warning flag, warning flag going up right now. I said, you know what I hear when I hear something. I hear that you are not the top priority. He wants to go and have his fun, and then when he's done with that, then he'll come back and marry you. You're not a priority. At least not the top one. And we have this long talk about sexuality. We have our parents right there, making sure everything was going okay and such. And. You know all the dangers of living together, having sex before marriage, and things like that. And they were very appreciative of us. That we have been trying to tell her this, these things for so long, and she hasn't listened. We needed someone to come in, for me outside and such. And it, I, it, it just boggles my mind. You know to see so many women. You know in essence, selling their bodies out, thinking they're going to get love that way. When we were really even guys, just looking, and saying, "Yeah, I've pretty much gathered here for entertainment purposes, and hey, I don't even have to make a commitment." And she uh, puts out, as it were.
2: Yeah, and I think that um, what people don't realize is that the body, in a sense, has a has a language that when mm-hmm. you when you your actions are actually communicating something.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like you know the in, in the Christian worldview, your body is part of the creation that's declaring the glory of God. And so the fact that humans reproduce sexually mm-hmm. is not some evolutionary accident. You know, it, it's part of the original creation that real, reveals the wonder and beauty of the Creator. And the implication, of course, is that the body speaks its own language. And we know that, we know that a smile means something, and we all know that a punch in the face means something.
1: Mm-hmm. You know that even
2: with broad, you know some some dip, some differences among cultures, but you know when when you hold hands with someone, what does it mean? Um, when you kiss someone, what does it mean? And That's why uh, when Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, it was so painfully ironic. When Jesus says, are "You are you you betraying me with a kiss." of all things because of course a kiss means something and he was using it to mean the opposite mm-hmm. and in the same way sexual intercourse means something it is the most intimate the, the ultimate form of physical union and that's why it's, it's meant to express the ultimate form of personal union of two people combined in mm-hmm. marriage with, who who have committed on all levels you know we we have phrases that mean having sex is the most that you can do sexually and physically. It's going all the way. It's getting to home plate. It's sealing the deal. Mm -hmm. So that's why it belongs only in a relationship where you're going all the way on all other levels as well. When you commit to another person legally, economically, socially, spiritually. My students, of course, my students often ask, isn't it enough just to be in love? And of course, the answer is, even being in love is, falls short of committing your entire self and your entire future to another person. Mm. So biblical morality is just asking us to be consistent in what we say with our bodies and we, what we say with the rest of our lives, to tell the truth with our bodies. You know, we can lie with our bodies. You know, you can hug someone when you don't really like them. You can betray someone with a kiss. Like Judas did, you can hold hands with somebody when you don't really feel affection or friendship with it. You can lie with your body, and in essence, that's what the Bible says you're doing when you have sex with someone that you're not committed to on all levels. Mm-hmm. You're saying, "I'm committed to you on all levels," because you're you're doing the you the most you can do physically when you're really not ready to commit on all levels. Essentially, mm-hmm. you're putting on an act. You're contradicting yourself. You're being dishonest. You're saying something with your body that's not really true. And I think that's what we have to help people under, understand is that it's a matter of integrity. Are you saying, the, are you speaking the truth with your body?
0: Well, you know, Dr. Fierce there are some people who say, but, you know, if you were out shopping and you were going to buy a car, you wouldn't buy a car without taking it for a test drive. So why not apply the same thing to marriage?
2: Because it's not a test drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words, you cannot test ultimate commitment. Mm-hmm. As you know, when you um, when you live together without ultimate commitment, what you're doing is you're practicing living together without ultimate commitment. You're mm-hmm. actually training yourself in less than full commitment. That's mm-hmm. the danger. It's not it's not just that you don't have full commitment yet, it's that you're training yourself in having a relationship that externally may look like you're committed, but you're not. You're training yourself in, like I said, not telling the truth with your body.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Actually, you are training uh, training yourself for failure, to, to put it bluntly. You're training yourself for a failed relationship because you're training yourself in how to have an external facade of a life together when the internal reality is not really there.
0: Now, To be fair, though, I mean, there are, just because some people do this, and of course I'm not justifying it at all, it doesn't mean they're condemned to a failed marriage at all, but it means they really need to change their views on marriage.
2: Well, the statistics are against them, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they are. The statistics are that the people who live together are actually more likely to have failed marriages. Now it does depend to some degree. If you get, if it is true that people who live together just shortly before they get married, are, the statistics are better. But on the whole, the statistics are certainly you're shooting yourself in the foot.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: are, you are going against the odds if you mm-hmm. live together before marriage. Your likelihood of breakup, I mean, this, 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 the, the studies have shown this fairly consistently, so this is not a, a question of anyone's opinion. This is a fact that people who live together outside of marriage are more likely to, to divorce once they do get married. So if if nothing else, out of sheer self-interest, you should be motivated because you want a good marriage. Everyone wants a good marriage. Yeah. Everyone wants a marriage that's going to last, where your spouse is going to be faithful, where you're going Mm -hmm. to have genuine commitment to the point where you feel secure and you're not always afraid the other person is going to duck out on you or or be unfaithful to you. We all want a good marriage. So if nothing, out of no other reason than self-interest, maybe you're not morally committed, (laughs) convinced, um, but out of self-interest, you should realize that when you live together outside of marriage, you set yourself up Mm -hmm. for the greater likelihood of divorce.
0: You know, what I tell women also is, I mean, I know there are some exceptions, but usually when it comes to the sexual market, we men are the go-getters. <laughs> we are the ones that want the product the most, as it were. I mean, my, my own wife and I were talking and I said, yeah, I could be sick and dying of a plague or something. And if she asked a question, I'd, be, I'd say, if she asked if I wanted to, i say, okay, let's go. <laughs> I mean, that's the way we men think. So what I tell the women here is, you know what, what you are doing when you have sex with a man, you are telling him how much you are worth. What does he have to do to get everything from you? So how much are you worth? Are you worth dinner and a movie, three dates, a week, a month, um, engagement, a year, or are you worth a total lifetime commitment, payment right up front beforehand, (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I, I agree. And um, Tim Keller puts it this way: "You know, sex is God's appointed way for two people to stay reciprocally to one another. Mm-hmm. I wow. belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you." Mm-hmm. Um, I had an article in Fox News about a week ago,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, it it was based it was based on an article that, uh, a new book that's come out and the new book showed that even in uh, in silicon valley they have a problem with sexual exploitation just as much as hollywood or politics or the media mm-hmm.
1: uh, and the new book
2: reveals that in the, the movers and shakers of the tech world the entrepreneurs investors founders of companies are hosting drug-fueled sex parties and as always it's the women who are losing out when they play this game Because women in the tech industry often feel compelled. They feel compelled to attend the parties to get ahead in their careers. Because a lot of business deals get made Mm. at these parties. But when they do join in, the reality is that it stalls their careers. Why? Because they start to be seen as sex objects instead of respected as Mm. professionals.
0: Yeah.
2: So liberals... um, Liberals are, uh, like to congratulate themselves on being progressive. And uh, it, it was interesting to read some of the quotes from the book because these tech leaders who attend these parties are very self-congratulatory. They say, well, it's because we're innovators in our field. And so we're innovators and unconventional in our sex lives as well. But it, they're really fooling themselves. I mean, when you consider how sexualized our culture is, they're not being brave or radical they're being conformists. Mm-hmm. Look! Look at how a hedonistic ethic pervades all of our public institutions, where um, you know most of them are probably university educated, and universities are holding sex weeks, mm-hmm. where they bring in porn stars as speakers. They bring in sex toy companies to display their wares. Uh, women nowadays, often, according to studies, women feel pressured to imitate porn stars. Or if you back up even further, um, high school.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Many students say that the sex education programs make them feel pressured into having sex. Once they found teens feel more pressure from their sex education classes than they do from their girlfriends or boyfriends.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And of course, then there's the use of sex in advertising, movies, music, fashion, even mm-hmm. children's toys. There are dolls now for little girls. Last time I went looking for... a um, a toy, uh, you know, a uh, Christmas toy for my grandson. I have a grandson. Mm-hmm. Congrats. <laughs> and uh, there were dolls for little girls that look like tramps. They're wearing mm-hmm. fishnet stockings. They're wearing red hot lingerie. They're wearing heavy makeup. And there are even clothes for little girls that are called slut style all the way down to infant clothing that says, I'm too sexy for my diaper. So children are being sexualized at ever younger ages. So, the, you know, at Silicon Valley, these tech leaders are not being bold and unconventional. They're following a script that was given to them. They're falling for a sales pitch. Mm-hmm. What really takes courage today is what you did. It's to stand against our sexualized culture and, and to stand for chastity and to treat women with respect.
0: Yep. And it, it's also, again, I know there are exceptions, but it's definitely a lot harder for women because usually women much, much more emotionally connect with sexuality. And I, I realize we men do too. I, mean, I tell people, I loved that before we got married, but then, you know, once you go and you see seal the deer, somehow that love just seems to escalate to a whole new level you never would have thought possible and such, but... For but the man usually can much more easily as it were hit it and quit it, but the women are the most damaged because they've bonded with that person
1: um, there's
2: there's um the body, I talk about the chemistry talk about bonding mm-hmm. there's the chemistry that changes when we have sex, in other words, scientists had discovered the role of hormones. In, in things like childbirth, uh, oxytocin, for example, mm-hmm. in childbirth. And it's a chemical that's released when a mother nurses her baby. It stimulates an instinct for caring and nurturing. In fact, it's often called the attachment hormone. But you can imagine how surprised scientists were when they discovered that oxytocin, the same hormone, is released during sexual intercourse, mm-hmm. especially but not exclusively in women. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, The desire to attach to another person when we have sex is not just emotional. It's part of our chemistry. Mm -hmm. Oxytocin has been shown to create a sense of trust. One sex therapist puts it this way. She said, when we have intercourse, we're creating an involuntary chemical commitment.
1: Mm -hmm. So,
2: The upshot is you may think you are having a no-strings-attached hookup. But in reality, you're creating a chemical bond, whether you mean to or not. I was um, amused to, uh, I was reading Glamour magazine. And um, even Glamour magazine warns young women. Uh, it said, because of your hormones, we often get prematurely attached. So even if you're intending to have casual sex, biology may trump your intentions. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great way of uh, giving, giving modern language to what Paul said when he said in 1 Corinthians. He says, "When whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, because sex does involve our bodies down to the level of our biochemistry.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, of course, the same is true for men, although the main neurochemical there um, is vasopressin. It's uh, structurally similar to oxytocin and has a similar effect. In fact, um, it has been dubbed the monogamy molecule, because Mm. scientists think it stimulates bonding with a woman and with their offspring. So, there's a a, uh, UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, a UCLA psychiatrist, and she sums this up. She says, you know, you might say we are designed to bond, We are chemically designed to bond. So what does that mean? It means that when you have a sexual encounter with someone, you are bonding emotionally and chemically, whether you mean to or not.
0: I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to a Deeper Wireless Podcast. We got Nancy Pierce, who's our guest, talking about her book, Love Thy Body. We're here next week, where we're going to find out what we're going to have. I'm still working on getting some good guests. I'm wanting next month to be a love and marriage month, as it were, especially with Valentine's Day, and getting the to other topics after that, come March. So, right now, I'm still working on things. But for now, let's get back to uh, Dr. Pierce, talking about love by body. Now, Something we did talk about is pornography a bit, and that's something that more and more women are getting into. But, you know, some people could say, you know, what's what's the big deal? You know, a man could say women are beautiful, and I just want to admire that beauty. What's what's the big deal?
2: Well, even pornography has the addictive power that it does, because it, too, literally changes the chemistry of our brains. Uh, just like other addictive triggers it floods the brain with dopamine and that rush of chemicals when it happens over and over again it rewires the brain's reward pathway and it can become a default setting and the only the trouble is of course that when you have this rush of dopamine the brain eventually gets overwhelmed it's a chemical overload and it starts to shut down some of the dopamine receptors Mm-hmm. And as a result, the poem viewer is not getting the same high. And he has to seek out more hardcore pornography to get the same dopamine effect. That's how it becomes addictive. So what it means is that science is confirming that human beings are a unified whole. You know, this, the, the idea that you can relate just to someone on a, on a body level, which is what porn is trying to do, right? You're looking, mm-hmm. at, you're looking at images without any concern for, for uh, who that woman is who she is as a person you're looking just at the body
1: mm-hmm.
2: but body that body person divide just doesn't it's not true to who we are the 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 very fact that pornography is so addictive is another sign that we are whole people that we are bodies we are chemistry and that affects our emotions that affects who we are as persons we are unified beings um and we cannot just say well it's okay it's no big deal because i'm just associating with these images, you know, on a physical level. No, your whole being is being affected.
0: You know, I have to say, it's very relieving to me that when it comes to Allie and I, that when I'm seeing her, she's not being compared to other images I've seen in the past, because they're not really there, that I'm looking at her and her only, and I'm saying one more, Ali, you are... More and more, my definition of what beauty is. And that's something sacred because too many women now, they're thinking they have to compete with porn.
2: And then they have to compete with fake images.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: uh-huh. that, that's the irony of it. Of course, there's so much of it is fake. Pornography is itself fake, and uh, the
1: mm-hmm.
2: photoshopped images that surround us are fake. And Again, we're back to we're back to treating people as if they were just bodies, and it's a cause of a lot of the young young women, in particular, because you know image is more important for women Mm -hmm. than Uh it is for men, Um, and it's it's certainly a cause of a lot of the bulimia and what's the other one? Anorexia, anorexia Anorexia and bulimia um, that young women are so prone to today is because the body is being emphasized. Way uh, uh, way beyond the um, the value of the person, and I f- appreciate what, what you're saying too. Is that we don't have we don't have alternative images in our mind yeah. if we're not looking at pornography. Yeah. I think one of the saddest thing I've ever heard is when I heard the statistics on how many women feel like now they're being pressured into imitate imitating what men have seen on porn.
1: Mm-hmm. This
2: was on, there was a study done, and it was on the website. Fight the new drug. You know, there's an organization called Fight the New Drug, and it's yep. geared toward it's geared towards young people because, according to a Barner research, young people don't think porn is any big deal. They think porn is less less of a uh, ethical problem than not recycling. <laughs> and I thought, how how in the world did they get their values so turned around?
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: Fight the New Drug is an organization uh, specifically organi- directed at young people, and notice they call it the drug. Because of the addictive power it has. But they had an article uh, that I quote in my book, Love Thy Body, in which they say uh, young young women are increasingly being asked by young men to imitate what they've seen on porn. And they're increasingly being taught that their only goal, their only purpose is to fulfill men's sexual fantasies. They're simply there to gratify men's desires. And the yeah uh, the uh, the uh, pressure that's being put on young women because of porn is just very tragic,
0: mm-hmm. and it has an effect on the men as well because, Jeff Myers, in his book in his book I can't remember the title but it's his latest book on war. We're so going to try and interview him on it. I, it's about ideas about God, the Secret War Battle on Ideas About God, I think, and he talks about how. You had heard from some young men that there are men in their 20s and such who are having to take Viagra now. And they have to take that because porn has damaged them so much, a real woman can't turn them on anymore.
2: That's exactly right. That's uh, uh, one of the things that people need to recognize is that when you do decide... It's time to get married. you do decide you want a committed long-term relationship. your uh, experience with porn is going to is going to undermine your mm-hmm. best intentions mm-hmm. people who and by the way it's not just porn these days um, the next step people say is robotic sex sex sex
1: yep.
2: fact in fact, and I believe I've seen two articles now, one in, in Spain, Barcelona, Spain, and another in I think it was the Netherlands that uh, sex doll brothels have opened so that you now instead of you go, you go to a brothel, and instead of having real women, you have sex with sex dolls. which is of course the ultimate depersonalization. Basically, basically when philosophically a materialist philosophy has been teaching people they're merely complex mechanisms then the logical outcome is the substitution of machines for real people. It's the ultimate depersonalization.
0: Harry yeah, had shared the story with me about that because she loves Japan. She's fascinated with Japan, but, you know, they have those stories of things going on over there and such. And it, it just blows my mind, Harry. And I'm thinking, you know, I... I really don't get it because a robot can do many, many things, I'm sure, but a robot can't really care about you and want you. And to me, that's what makes the marriage act, as it's called, so special because when it's going on, saying, yes, my wife actually wants me for me. It's not a robot. It's a real giving going on.
2: Yeah, I think it's good to to get some background when I mentioned materialist philosophy. It's good to get some background on where is this mentality ultimately coming from.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the the secular ethic actually has a very low view of the body because it's saying that the body is just a collection of cells and tissues and organs without any higher meaning. So mm-hmm. ultimately it goes back to seeing nature as a cosmic accident. If nature is a cosmic accident, it's a product of blind material forces, it has no higher purpose or meaning. So of course the human body is going to share in that, it's going to be, it's no different from any other chance configuration of mm-hmm. matter. And so what's the implication? The implication is our bodies convey no moral message, they give no clue to identity, they have no inherent purpose that we are obligated to respect. We're the ones who decide what's right or wrong. So morality is reduced to subjective choice. You probably know there's an outspoken lesbian feminist named Camille Paglia.
0: I know about her.
2: Yeah, you know her. I I figured you would. Um, But it's fascinating. She has an uh, an article where she defends defends homosexuality. She's a lesbian. And here's how she defends it. She says, look. Nature has made us male and female, no doubt about it. We are sexually reproducing species. So nature has made us heterosexual. But she says, why not defy nature? She puts it, uh, why not defy nature's tyranny? And then here's here's the money quote. She says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. Mm -hmm. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So if our bodies are the product of blind material forces, then we can do with them whatever we want. There is no morality that is more suitable to who we are than another than any other morality. So, it's, And this is why a Christian ethic always does respect our bodies and biology. And that's whether we're addressing abortion, like the scientific facts about when life begins, as we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Or sexuality, the facts about sexual differentiation, reproduction, um, the oxytocin that's released in sexual, in sexual activity. So a Christian ethic is always treating human beings as a psychophysical unity, that the body is, is important to our overall identity. The body has its own value, its own moral message, its own moral dignity. And so we never p- treat people as, quote-unquote, just bodies. We, whether you know, in porn and sexuality, uh, or even in abortion, it's never just a body; it's always a whole person. And so, as a result, the Christian ethic is always emphasizing value—the value and dignity of the whole person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I've since I've gotten married, one of the things I try to do is regularly go through Christian marriage books and such, because to me, one of the greatest compliments I can be given in people who listen to my is, you really love your wife, don't you? And you're such a great husband, Turing. My, my former roommate who was my best man. Got me for my birthday last year a T-shirt that says, I love my wife. And I love wearing that thing out in public. It, it's such a joy. And one book I, books I got, it was one with Four Lovers Only by a pastor and his wife. And it sums up something I think Christians can say about sex. I've been tempted to use it some doing a lot of debate that happened. He says that if an atheist ever comes to you and asks you for evidence that God exists, you just answer with one word, sex. Let him think about it some. And if he comes back a day or so later and he's not convinced, he's told you a lot more about his sex life than anything else. (laughs)
2: That's a a good point. I like that. And the irony is, you know, Christians have actually faced this Mm -hmm. kind of a situation before. The Mm -hmm. Christians grew up in the Greco-Roman culture early church, mm-hmm. where there were virtually no moral limits on sexuality,
1: mm-hmm.
2: for men, for men at least, yeah. um, that, that the, the most common form of infidelity was having sex with your slaves, that, and both male and female slaves, and both adults and minors.
1: Mm-hmm. They were no
2: fair game. If, if, if you had a slave, you had absolute control over their whole body. Um, and everything that they did. Uh, it was also common for men to to visit brothels and prostitutes. It was common for men to have uh, sex with other men. There was no sense that sex with other men was any worse than, you know, any different than sex with, with women. So the Christian church grew up in an environment where sexuality was virtually unbound, totally untethered to to marriage. Uh, and a culture also where infanticide and abortion were widely practiced and widely accepted. And why was it? Again, interestingly enough, it came out of a low view of the body. The, the prevailing worldviews back then were philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism, which treated the material world as a place of death, decay, and destruction, And therefore, the body was not highly valued. In fact, the body was called the prison, a prison Mm. house of the body was a common phrase. And Gnosticism thought that there were several levels of deity Mm. and that this material world was created by the lowest level deity who was actually an evil god because no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. Mm. So in this context, Christianity was revolutionary. It taught that, no, it was the highest God, the supreme deity, Mm -hmm. who created the material world. And what's more, he pronounced it very good. And an even greater scandal was the incarnation.
1: Mm, That God himself
2: entered that material world and took on a human body. So the, the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the body And finally, at the end of time, God is not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake the first time. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heavens and a new earth. So the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. Mm -hmm. This is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. And that's why uh, my book, Love Thy Body, gives people the tools— to go beyond a negative message, you know, it's wrong. It's a, sin, it's a sin. Don't do it. Thou shalt not, which is true, but it's incomplete. My goal is to help people, equip people, to show that a biblical ethic is more appealing, more attractive, more affirming, more humane, more loving than than any secular ethic.
0: Yeah, and I like to make sure people know something that when I interview people about these books. Jerry, all I can give is a picture and a paragraph, because there is so much in these books, so much that you can't cover everything. You can't look, walk away from here and think, well, I know everything that's in the book. You're not going to. And I'd say this book is one I'd call a bombshare book. I mean, if you are debating these issues at all, or want to know more about these issues, this is one I'd say... Put on the top of your list to get. I, I've got a really good friend, my former roommate, who I talked about and such. And I messaged him as I was going through this. And I said, you have to get this You have to. You, you There's no excuse if you don't.
2: Well, um, talking about issues, maybe we should cover a couple a couple of those hot-button issues, like um, like homosexuality, for example.
0: Well, I, I was going to get to that.
1: Well, yeah, okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, let, <laughs> before we do that, though, since it is a hot button, I'd like to just go ahead for a little bit here and let people know you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener supported. And we could really use the support of people like you here. And if you want to do that, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. There is a section on the side, help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click there, you get taken to the ministry of risen Jesus. That's the ministry of Mike Lacona. And you've gone to the right place. Those are my in laws. You make your donation and it goes to them. But you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Alan and say, hey, I want that donation to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And it goes to us Finn, And it is tax deductible. Now, you can also buy ebooks that I've written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostle's Creed, and Today's Christian. Or once I've co defying inerrancy, God and natural disasters, groundness, Christian answers of this generation's questions, and guys, Valentine's Day is coming up here, and now, I'm not sure if you know this, or I'm sure Dr. Pierce, can explain it very well, women tend to like jewelry, They, they love to get the jewelry, and we have a jewelry store here, And especially if you're planning on popping the question on Valentine's Day, you are going to need some jewelry. So why not purchase some jewelry through our jewelry store? And whatever you purchase, 25% of it goes to help deeper waters. A whole 25%. And guys, you know my saying to you. When you go this way, you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. Yeah, If you can't do any of these, please at least go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I love to see them. Dr. Piercy. do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to?
2: Actually, you've persuaded me. (laughs) I think they should give to Deeper Waters and Risen Jesus, and I want to go browse your jewelry store is what I want to do. (laughs)
0: Oh, well, if you need help with figuring out how it it works and such, if that's out there, get in touch with me and I'll make sure it's all set up and such. Now, Dr. Piercy, we're talking about homosexuality, and we're going to have to connect this also as well with the uh, Oberfair or Supreme Court ruling. Now, some people say, you know, homosexual behavior, I mean, what's the big deal? As long as there's love, because love makes it all right.
2: Right. I uh, love thy body. I am helping people to get a different perspective on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm arguing that it really expresses a low view of the body. And think of it this way. No one really denies that biologically, physiologically, anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one Mm -hmm. another. That that's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when you embrace a same-sex identity, what you're implicitly doing is saying, I'm, "I'm contradicting my biological design." You're saying, "Why should the structure of my body inform my identity? Why should my sexual identity as male or female have any to say, any say in my moral choices?" So this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. It implies that what counts is not my body, whether I'm biologically male or female, but solely my mind, my feelings, my desires. And it also creates an inner conflict between the two. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it has a fragmenting and self-alienating effect on the human personality. If you read queer theorists, you've heard of queer theory. Um, Yeah. Queer theorists themselves talk about it as a mismatch between your biological sex and your sexual desire. So really, those of us who are defending a biblical view of sexuality are not just relying on a few scattered Bible verses, as critics often say. What Mm -hmm. we're saying is that the universe was created by a loving God for his purposes. The technical term there is a teleological worldview. Teleology just means it has a purpose. And so the biblical ethic is saying you are meant to take your identity from your body. You are meant to have your biological identity as male or female inform your identity and inform your moral choices so that there's a harmony, there's an integrity, there's a coherence between your body and your mind, between your biological identity and your psychological identity. So the biblical ethic actually heals that inner conflict and leads to a holistic integration of human personality. So this, again, it helps us get away from just having a negative image of don't do it, a negative message of don't do it, and have a positive message that says, we have a higher view of the body. We have a higher view of the body-person integration. And uh, we have a healing message for people who are um struggling with issues of, of same sex attraction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did see something someone put out recently that said you can't be a gay Christian. So if that depends on what's meant. If it means you can't be a Christian and living a practicing active homosexual lifestyle, yes, I agree. But if it means you can't be a Christian and struggle with those desires and such, then I don't agree.
2: Yeah, one of my favorite stories, I have lots of personal stories in Love Thy Body. And one of my favorite one is the one that starts off the chapter on homosexuality. It's a story of a young man named Sean, Sean Mm -hmm. Doherty, um, who was exclusively attracted to other men. And when he became a Christian, he figured his only option was to be celibate. But today he's married and has three kids. And So you say, what changed? He said, well, you know, I started to decide that my feelings were not really my identity. Mm -hmm. My identity really was in my body, my biological identity as male. Um, That's an empirically knowable fact about myself. Our feelings change, they often do, but our bodies don't change. Um, And our, uh, you know, sort of the central the central core of our identity. He said, I, I accept, without ignoring my feelings, I just accepted that my identity would be based on my body and accepting my body as a good gift from God. And he said, "Without without trying to change his feelings directly, they began to change. And so at the root of these moral issues, is the question, what kind of cosmos do we live in? Are we products of blind material forces? You know, are, do our bodies, which, which implies our bodies have no moral message, they have no purpose that we're obligated to respect, they have no nothing to say about our identity, or do we live in a cosmos created by a personal God so that our bodies reflect his loving purpose and we do have a moral obligation to know and respect that
1: purpose.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd like to use some of what you said to go into the next big topic, and then we can connect it to what the implications are for this. And that's that this person said that the facts and its empirically verifiable is they are a human male. But, you know, once you know it, there are some people who are even questioning that these days. So I've told some friends and projects. sometimes it amazes me for things I have to defend today that I never would have dreamed I'd have to defend when I started doing apologetics. And one of the things I have to defend is that men are men and women are women.
2: Yes, in other words, transgenderism. Yep. right. exactly. but and it's but it's even easier to see the low view of the body. In the arguments to support transgenderism, because after all, the transgender narrative is that gender has nothing to do with your biological sex, that the authentic self is strictly a matter of inner feelings. So that kids down to kindergarten are being taught that their bodies are irrelevant to our, their identity, that that their body doesn't matter, that all, all that matters is your inner feelings, your sense of self. But to which you would say, why? Why would you accept such a demeaning view of the body that is radically dehumanizing? Mm-hmm. If our bodies do not have inherent value, then a key part of our human identity is devalued. And so the transgender narrative is estranging people from their own body. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, some, nowadays, I, I, I'm on some Twitter feeds from uh, transgender activist groups you know, to, to, to kind of find out what's going on. And there are transgender activists who now treat the, the phrase biological sex as a hate term.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a hate term because you're throwing it up into their face that they're not living according to their biological sex. But again, if, if biological sex is a hate term, what are you saying about the body and biology? It is, it is a radically dehumanizing approach to the body.
0: hmm I think a lot of it relies also on these kind of sort of false cultural understandings. I mean, for instance, I, I think it's either sometimes sometime this month or next month. This is how ignorant I am about the matters and such that the Super Bowl is going to be taking place. Now, at this household, there's going to be one person here who is all caught up in it, who wants to watch the game, who gets so excited, who absolutely loves football. And there's one other person who wants to turn off the radio, as soon as any talk of football comes on and says, I'm sorry, but I just don't want to listen to the traps of a devil and such. And if you think it's going to be the traditional way that it usually is, you've got it absolutely wrong at our household. Because when we turn on the Super Bowl, I only put my, I, I read my book and I put it down during the commercials. I loves to watch the game.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly. And um you know I mentioned that there are a lot of personal stories in mm-hmm. love thy body and uh, the the opening story in the, the trap the chapter on transgenderism is is, is uh, somewhat like what you just described. It's um, a young mm-hmm. a young man who I knew from the time he was a little boy. Um, and I, I call him Brandon, which is not his real name, but from the time he was an infant, he was quiet, he was sensitive, he was mm. relational. As a toddler, his babysitter was already saying to his mother, he's too good to be a boy. Mm. She, you know, he, she, he had that quiet, compliant sense that you more likely expect from little girls. When he was in preschool, um, when the boys roughhoused on one side of the room and the girls sat in a circle and talked, Brandon was sitting with the little girls. So, from the time he was quite young, he was gender non-conforming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when he, by the time he got into uh, junior high, he was, he, he was painfully out of step with the prevailing John Wayne masculinity <laughs> image. And he, he, he finally told his parents, he said, I feel the way girls do. I think the way girls do. I'm interested in the things girls, that girls are interest, interested in. He said, God should have made me a girl. And so he has struggled with the, you know, this is is not one of those cases where, you know, a teenage girl discovers it on the Internet, a kind of social contagion, which happens today, unfortunately. This was a clear case of a child with gender gender dysphoria. And uh, he, but what did his parents do? His parents kept stressing, God made you um, a boy. And it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perfectly possible to be a boy and to be fully masculine and to be sensitive, relational, gentle. God has probably gifted you for one of the caring professions. You know, you're going to be a psychologist, uh, you know, something like that. And they worked with him very hard. Um, and it was a long, it was a long, hard haul, but they kept reminding him that it, God has. If, if if you don't fit the stereotypes, that's okay. You know, that's kind of how you started out with the foot, the football analogy. Um, yep. If you don't fit the stereotypes, that's okay. And I think that's something that that churches, um, Christian groups, need to maybe get, uh, get a handle on a little bit better than we currently do. That. Young boys growing up who are more on the sensitive, creative side or young girls growing up who are more on the assertive, maybe sporty side, that churches are affirming of those girls and those boys because they often grow up feeling painfully out of step with the stereotypes. And these days, if we're not supporting them, they are going to question their gender identity and they're going to be encouraged and pushed even to question their gender identity. And uh, I I talked to a couple who's had a little girl who was 11, yeah, 11 years old when I was writing Love Thy Body. And I quote them in the book. And they said, um, the schools are pushing gender issues so much that the kids are constantly asking each other, are you trans? Are you gay? There's constant pressure on these young people. At 11, at age 11, she had a a girlfriend, a friend who was a girl who asked her to be a girlfriend who asked her to be in a lesbian relationship at age 11. So our young people are really getting a lot of pressure on these issues. And the church has got to catch up mm-hmm. and start giving them the support they need.
0: Yeah, you know, there was something amusing. When I was in Bible college, I took a class on family and things like that. And the teacher had us do this thing. And we didn't know why she was doing it at the start. But it was she went to list us traits that we were sure were masculine in nature and then list ones that were feminine and so we made a list of masculine traits and then we made a list of feminine traits then the teacher took us down the line and said okay now here's a question which we're going to look at each of these traits which one of these do you think applies most to jesus and it was so odd because everything we said was masculine did not apply to jesus and everything that was feminine did apply. And it didn't tell me my, our Christology was wrong. It told me we have some messed up ideas on masculinity and femininity.
2: Yeah, although sometimes our Christology is wrong, too. I mean, we do have the, uh, the leftovers of the sort of Victorian Jesus uh, meek and mild. We do have a somewhat feminized view of Jesus, I yeah. think, um, although that's a topic for my earlier book, I have that. I cover that topic in my book Total Truth. Mm. I have a chapter on the feminization of Christianity, but I, I do think that you're right that um, the church has often not really valued masculine traits as much. We have had somewhat of a notion that religion is a, and Christianity in particular is kind of a feminine religion, and um, and that that could be feeding into some of these issues today as well. That's a good point.
0: Yeah, there there's even a book, man, I, I'm wanting to read it, it's about why men hate going to church. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how church is so feminized so often. I mean, we go and I'm hearing the worship songs, and usually I just don't find them appealing to me at all because I'm not an emotionally driven person like that. But if I hear a sermon that's very intellectual and gets me thinking, I love that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, that's David Murrow's book, um, Why Men Had a Church. And it's very, it actually is very similar to um, my chapter 12 in Total Truth, except that I give more of the history. I give the history of how the church became feminized. And in many ways, it has to do with the public private split in society, that as um, the public sphere was secularized first and Christianity was sort of shoved off marginalized into the private sphere. In other words, um, people began to say, well, things like, it's, it's a sacred-secular split, right? That the secular realm of mm-hmm. business and politics and industry and ac- academia uh, was, was was secularized, and it was thought that somehow it was inappropriate to bring your Christian views into the public arena. So where did where was the only place where Christianity could, Christianity could thrive? Well, it was pushed into the p- private realm. Well, in the private realm, what's there? Family, church, and women, because women are home raising children. So what happens then is that churches begin, historically churches began to cater more to women, because women were the ones who uh, went, went to church. And the, the church roles, you could see it in the membership roles, you be, it became more and more common to have a woman who was a church member and a husband who was not a church member. Mm-hmm. or and pastors began to pitch their sermons to women and encourage them to be the means of saving their worldly husbands. so that that historically, when Christianity was privatized, is when it also became more feminized. And that's that's one reason that it's so important to have a Christian world view which says, no, Christianity is not meant to just be about my emotional life, my private life, my family life, and how to lose weight. (laughs) You know, know, so many churches now have practical things like how to lose weight, but, um, and and sort of emotional healing, healing from divorce and so on, and nothing's wrong with that.
0: Right, it's just it's not all about that.
2: Right, a Christian worldview says, no, there's meant to be a Christian position on politics, on economics, on all the academic subjects, academia in um, uh, Hollywood and, and entertainment, there's a, meant to be a Christian perspective on all these areas. And that's why uh, Christianity, you know, the first step in having a Christian worldview is to overcome the sacred-secular split that tends to lock Christianity up in the sacred realm and to deny it any impact on the secular realm.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you know, we need to talk to you about the impact of both these because we've just barely touched transgenderism and homosexuality because I really like, like us to look at the impact of them. And people, please get a book because there is so much more in here that I can't cover. But I mean, when it comes to, for instance, transgenderism, one of the first implications I think of is I am sure there are more than enough guys out there who will be happy to go to their schools and suddenly say, I'm really a girl, just so I can go and get to shower with the girls, and go back and tell all their buddies and things like that and such, and get all the high fives. And people look and say, "Well, that's a horrible result of this. and I agree it is. But there's a whole lot more at stake, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I have to tell you, I'm pretty careful um, in my in all my writings not to attribute motives.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In other words, I'm going to deal with the ideas right. and. I'm not gonna deal with you know whether some people are, you know faking it. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know but whether but some guys are faking it because they want to get entrance into uh, women's changing rooms and so on. I deal mostly with the ideas. and you know there's a reason for that, and that is I think Christians are a little too quick to jump to motives. You mm-hmm. know, we talked about it at the beginning of the program when you said, well, when you had, when you had objections to Christianity, was it partly because you just didn't like Christian morality, and you, right. you wanted you wanted to live, you wanted to live, you know, part, partying and um, drinking and sex and whatnot? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I ran into that a lot when I was a psych, when I was an agnostic. And I ran into Christians who would not take my questions seriously because they all wanted to just psychoanalyze me and say, "Well, you have a spiritual problem. You have a moral problem." And so I'm very careful never to do that with people. I always treat their intellectual objections first. Right. Uh, obviously, if you spend a lot of time with somebody, you may eventually get to know them and find out that they also have personal motives as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in when I deal with transgenderism and love A body, I deal strictly with people who really honestly are struggling with gender dysphoria. Um, and, and I don't deal with sort of... Um, I don't deal with people who are uh, using the transgender movement to maybe, you know, dishonestly gain access to women's spaces and so on. That is a problem, but Mm -hmm. it's just not where I focus. I focus on the underlying worldview.
0: Right. But what then is the great danger? I mean, let's use homosexuality for example. Some people say, well, here's the results that's going to happen when homosexuals are given right to marry. Here's here's a great biggie that's going to come. Homosexuals will get married. End of story. Is is that it? I mean, it's not going to affect our marriage, is it?
2: Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good question. Um, Yes, it does. (laughs) When, and and the reason it does affect everyone is that it destroys pre-political rights. It's, and when you destroy pre-political rights, you expand the coercive power of the state. So, for example, let's take marriage. In the past, the state recognized marriage as a pre-political right. It's based on the fact that humans are a sexually reproducing species. But the only way the law can treat same-sex couples, same-sex couples, the same as opposite-sex couples, is to deny that biology has any relevance and to declare that marriage is just an emotional commitment. And that's what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision, um, the 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 lawyer defending the law said, "Well, wait a minute. the the law is based on biology. It's the whole point is to defend marriage because of the biological consequences of marriage, which is children." Mm-hmm. And the justices, you know, airily dismissed that, and said, "No, no. Uh, it's just about a matter of emotional commitment." Well, the trouble is there's endless varieties of emotional commitments. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So essentially what the state has done is they've claimed the authority to decide which emotional commitments qualify as marriage. Mm -hmm. So instead of marriage being a pre-political right, that means the state does not create it. The state Mm -hmm. merely recognizes it. Now the state is not recognizing it. It is creating it. it, is defining which emotional commitments qualify as marriage.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So marriage is no longer a pre-political right. It's something created by the state. And of course, what the state defines, what the state gives, the state can take away. Yeah.
0: And it's such a bizarre definition, because like I said, I lived with a roommate before Ari and I got married. You could have technically called it a marriage by today's definition, even though there was no romance, no sex, nothing like that, definitely just two guys helping to provide one another so we could go to school, get our degrees and things like that. It's a common living situation that many men find themselves in. And yet, by the court's definition, it could count as a marriage, couldn't it?
2: That's right. And that's why it's arbitrary. Um, you know, that's important. If mm. you take away biology, it becomes arbitrary. It becomes something the state invents out of thin air. Mm. You know, on what grounds? On what grounds? Because your emotional commitment should have could have applied. Mm-hmm. though you know, a mother and a daughter is living together, their emotional commitment could apply. I had an uncle who lived with his two unmarried sisters. That could have applied. How did the state decide? Well, if there's no biological base for marriage, then it becomes purely arbitrary, and the state is making things up out of thin air. And that's why I say it's a huge increase in the power of the state.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And as
2: a result, it's taking away, it's it's decreasing our liberties and expanding the power of the state.
0: And, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, if you read the Marx and ingers the Communist Manifesto, one of the things they wanted to get rid of is the family. Everything would be held in common by everyone, including the wives.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. They understood. They understood that the family is one of the key barriers to the state having complete power mm-hmm. the state wants to be able to raise children from the you know from childhood from very young childhood so that they will become docile manageable and totally committed to the state that's the ultimate goal well let's take um by the way this it's the same thing with transgenderism mm-hmm. because there too if you get rid of biology notice how it increases the The power of the state. Mm -hmm. In the past, it was assumed that your gender was set by your biological sex. I mean, it's just your gender followed metaphysically from whether you were biologically male or female. Mm -hmm. But the only way the law can treat a trans woman, someone born male, a trans woman Mm -hmm. the same as a biological woman, is to deny that biology has any relevance and to declare gender to be a matter of inner feelings.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So and that's that's why the state has become passing laws and public schools are passing policies telling us who you must call he or she. Again, you see, if you get rid of biology as the base, then the state can decide who's who qualifies as a man or a woman. That's a huge increase in state power.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, it, it- it's really terrifying if people stop and think about it. And because for family is an institution that it can live on its own regardless of the state and such. And so the state essentially has to abolish that. It's going to become sort of all-powerful. And there are so many people, I think, today that when they get rid of God, the state actually becomes God.
2: Yeah, it's, it's almost inevitable that whoever has the most power... Mm-hmm. If gender is a matter of will, if gender is not a matter of your biology but a matter of will,
1: mm-hmm.
2: now at first that may sound very liberating because it sounds like I can choose for myself. But in mm-hmm. fact, it's not going to stay that way. In fact, it ultimately will go to whoever has the most power, and that will be the state. Mm-hmm. So, um, and let's back up. You know where it started with? It started with abortion. -hmm. Because it's the same pattern. That's what I want. uh, That's what I hope listeners catch. It's the pattern, it's the logic behind it. In the past, the law recognized the right to life as a pre political right. In other words, that's something you had just because you were a member of the human race. Mm -hmm. The law did not create it, the law merely recognized it. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to deny that biology has any relevance, and to declare that some humans, some people who are biologically human, are not persons with a right right to legal protection. So Mm -hmm. you see, the state was claiming the authority to decide arbitrarily which humans qualify for the rights of personhood, the right not to be killed. You see, once again, they were essentially saying, yeah, yeah, okay, you're biologically human, but that no longer counts. Being human is no longer enough for human rights.
0: Mm. So, what, what can we do about this exactly?
2: <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I, I think education is really the key. Um, and I, we can take hope. From the change that we've seen on the abortion issue,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: when, when abortion first happened, most people jumped into, the, into politics as a way to fight it. And there's a, certainly an important role for politics. But it's when people began to see that, that politically we were not achieving as much as we had hoped that a lot of people said, you know what, it's more of a worldview issue. We need to be educating mm-hmm. people. We can't just pass laws because laws are ineffective if you don't change minds. And so today, millennials are the most pro-life generation out there. The numbers are just, there's been several surveys, and the numbers are indisputable that millennials are more pro-life than their baby boomer parents. Now, I think that's really exciting. What that shows is that with education, you can, in fact, change people's minds. And I think we haven't done it yet. Really, we haven't really done it on these other issues: homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. Um, that's we we need to get beyond. Uh, you know, Nick. When I post something on transgenderism, for example, on my Facebook page, yeah, you know, I'm I'm disappointed to have to say that most of the responses. That's insane. This is crazy. How can people think this way? That's not the, that's not going to change people's minds.
1: Mm-hmm. We need.
2: We need to start engaging with the underlying worldview and helping people to recognize what's at stake in terms of your view of the body and what we just talked about, um, the loss of pre-political rights. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I, I do agree anyways. It is crazy and such. And I, but I also think part of this, we have to teach people today that. Thinking and feeling are not the same thing, and your feelings are not the greatest thing in the universe. I mean, I, I often I remember we had some Jehovah's Witnesses who were visiting us for a while, and we lived in Tennessee for some strange reason. They stopped coming after a while. I I, I can't even imagine what it was, but anyway, they'd read a passage of scripture to me and say, well, "How do you feel about this?" Well, happy. Maybe you sad sometimes and such. And Thierry started realizing, we can't say how you, how you feel about us. He wants us to say, what do you think about this? Because those are two very different questions.
2: Exactly. Um, and that's why that's that's why I write so much on Christian worldview, mm-hmm. is I'm trying to help people recognize that um, if they're not thinking about these issues, the secular ideas will permeate their minds if you Mm -hmm. don't have a critical grid in place if you're just going by your feelings you won't have a critical grid in place and you will absorb these ideas like for example let's take things let's let's go back to something on transgenderism Mm -hmm. um you know it's very common to see people saying um well we just have to love people we just have to accept them we need to help them realize that wait a minute Aldous Huxley wrote this. Wrote about this in Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Do you remember he said, uh, he he depicted a tyrannical world government that had gotten rid of the words mother and father. They were obscene. Well, that's mm-hmm. what the transgender movement is trying to do. It's If you don't have gender, what people don't realize is the next step. You have to think logically, like you're saying. You have to think logically. Mm-hmm. Once you get rid of gender, you get rid of mother and father, brother, sister, son, daughter. You get rid of the family mm-hmm. because it's all gendered terms. And in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, that's exactly what he depicts. The, the world state gets rid of the the language of family, first of all. When you get rid of the language of family, you get rid of the reality of family, so that the citizens no longer form their primary loyalty to the family, but to the state, and of course that makes them easy to manipulate and control. So, if you recognize, you know, Francis Schaeffer used to say this all the time. He used to say, if you recognize first principles, and and and, and what's the logical progression from certain principles? If you have a gender-free society. A sec- you basically have a sex- sexless society, you cannot have a family. Mm-hmm. And so this the transgender is not just about being kind to people who have gender dysphoria. It's about a movement to destroy the very nature of the family. And when the family is is destroyed, then you then the state moves in. Mm-hmm. And the state controls the citizens in a way that they, it, beyond what we can imagine.
0: Well, Dr. Piercy, we don't have enough time to get into another question, unfortunately. Uh, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more?
2: Right, yeah. I have a, a website, dot com, mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, that's P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. There's an E in there before mm-hmm. the Y. And and also, uh, the Piercy, Piercy mm-hmm. Uh That's run primarily by my husband, but I'm an uh, editor at large. But pierceyreport.com. So, nancypiercy.com and piercereport.com.
0: Yeah, I like to let people know. The book is Love Thy Body. As of time of this recording, I'm looking on Amazon right now. The hardcover is 15.31, The Kindle is 12.99. An audio CD is 3136, although you can get an audio book for free with an audible trial. People, go out and get this book, please. This is a bombshell book. You have to read it and such. Now, Dr. Piercy, do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters' audience?
2: Well, I appreciate very much for having a chance to talk with you, and I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I would just emphasize one more time, you know, it all comes back to your worldview. You know, do we... What kind of cosmos do we live in? Do we live in a cosmos of blind material forces, or do we live in a worldview that's created by God? And Do we mm-hmm. accept our sexuality, our gender, as a good gift from God? I, mm-hmm. I, love, I love to push people back to the the sort of the, the first principle. That's where it all starts.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Dr. Piercy, thank you so much. It's been great having you on, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I do hope we'll see you back here again sometime.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And I like to let know that we're going to see who we're going to get on next week. We're going to have some emphasis on marriage, family, love, and relationships, that kind of thing. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.